Hi, my name is Francis Bitanti. I'm the founder and president of Studio Bitanti. Uh, we're a design firm based in, in Brooklyn, New York. And, um, you know, we, you know, there's a lot of talk of design right now and manufacturing about the fourth industrial revolution. I mean, I, we try not to contextualize what we're, what we're doing there. I think what we're, we're, we're really focused on, and this, this tagline here is, is for, you know, it, innovation, material innovation for the information age. I think what we're seeing now is we're seeing a, a collision of our information systems and our material production systems. And what we really focus on is what, what are the design methodologies that we're going to need to solve these problems, to reconcile these differences, and to leverage all that data, all that information, whether it's self-generated engineering simulations or whether that's big data about our customers and about our brands. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about how we work, um, you know, and the kinds of roles that we play. I mean, I, you know, we, you talked about the Milan Furniture Fair. I mean, I think we're really trying not to be the, the, the kind of hero designers. Um, we see ourselves as being supporting roles. Um, and that might be the role of, of what I've, I'm coming to call a design futurist. Um, this is somebody who is really just helping you think about what's the future of your design methodology? What's the future of how you think about your products, how you think about your customer experiences relative to these new production material technologies. And the, the last role here, which I think is extremely important, is something I call an algorithmic designer. And this is somebody who is, is able to think through code or solve aesthetic and material problems. Um, people that would work with me and fill this role in the studio are generally people that have a, like a split background, someone who would have both a design and a computer science background, ideally. Uh, they're few and far between. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about my journey to this first and how, because it's a, you know, it's an unusual profession. Um, and what got me into this, I was originally an architect. Um, so I was, I was primarily interested in, in form. And, uh, while, while I was an architect, I took a summer and I, I spent it with a, with a physicist. Um, he was running a summer program. Uh, his name was Stephen Wolfram and, and he was working with systems like these, to, to think differently about how we might think about physics. Um, and what was, there were two things that I really took from this that were amazing. Um, one was that these behaviors are incredibly complex, right? Like this, this isn't math art, right? It's not, we're not looking at, at spirals and waves and, and Fibonacci sequences. Like, these, are, these are robust um, robust systems with lots of things going on. There's, there's structures coming together and they're coming back apart. Like, you know, this, this looks like, a, like high art or a symphony, right? There's, there's a lot going on here. And what's underneath it is, is just these sets of interactions. And the amazing thing about that summer, what I noticed about the way we were solving those problems was that we weren't using our minds in the way that I might have been taught in school or design school. Right? I wasn't trying to solve a problem. Like there, there was no kind of lone genius alone banging his head against the wall trying to find this sort of divine solution. What we were doing was we were said, okay, well, what is every possible configuration? And there might be millions, right? But, but instead of spending our time trying to solve that problem, we spent our time, time trying to sort that data, and we spent our time trying to search through that data. Um, and I think this is the way we need to really start thinking as designers. I mean, design thinking has taken us very far, but it's still, uh, there, there's still a bit of a lone genius mentality and that like someone will find a solution. Um, and the reality of it is right now is we have so much information. We can do so many permutations. We can come up with so many different designs and different forms that I, we, we need to stop trying to solve these problems head on in a linear way. Um, so 
when I got out of architecture school, I was, uh, I was experimenting with these systems. I'm going to just show you some images, which are really just drawings. But what I wanted to see was, could I get those patterns of behaviors to control the way geometry was made in the computer? So a previous image might be operations like make a triangle and rotate it 25 degrees if it's a black dot, or 15 degrees if it's a white dot or in the case of this, placing spheres or drawing lines. Um, I want to see if I can get algorithms to tease out these patterns of behavior to control the construction of geometry and ultimately machines. Um, I was still trying to be an architect, and that was, that was clearly not going well by that image, um, but we were trying. Um, anyway, so I'm going to just circle back here and, and talk a little bit. So this is, this is an image that's generated by a computer, right? And, and what, you, what I want you to focus on in this image is that there's the pattern is changing across, across that grid. Um, each axis is, is us changing the parameters. So this is, this is a system that's able to produce a lot of different geometric behaviors. Um, we're getting like a solid filled in void on one side. We're getting like, like dots on the other side. We're getting a maze in the middle. The, the dots in the maze invert. There, there's, a, there's a lot that this one system can do. Um, and and that just, that, that's just being controlled by two axes of behavior. Um, now, you know, this we could use this to to say like well, we're going to solve an engineering problem. Um, you know, and we we can find solutions in there, or patterns of behavior in there that would solve different problems. We could also put that against maybe you know maybe we're solving for both the performance criteria and some consumer's desire, or maybe it's a purely aesthetic motive. But the idea is that we're 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 just we're seeing what's out there, what's possible, and we're looking for solutions in the space, right? We're not, we're not trying to come up with an actual solution. We're building algorithms that make things. Um, so early in my career, I was focused, I was transitioning out of architecture. The tools just weren't ready. Things were too big. So we figured we'd focus on furniture. Um, and I, you know, I didn't really, I wasn't inspired by nature. I didn't want to make things that look like trees. Um, you know, the, the economics of 3D printing made me make this. It was expensive. Um, with traditional tooling, we had, it, it was incentivized to create different kinds of geometries, right? Surface area was expensive. Volume was, volume was cheap. Uh, in this case, volume, is volume is expensive, surface area is free, right? So now we ended up, well, what, what is an aesthetic language of high surface area geometries, right? I, I don't see this as an art chair so much as I see this as a negotiation of a new kind of industrial economics. Um, all right, so uh, we're, what kinds of things do we work on now? Um, so we work a lot on products that go on the body. We've worked on a lot of fashion products. Um, we also work on some medical products. And the one I want to start off with is a, it's a recent recent collaboration we did with a company called Unique um, and, and Intel. Um, and uh, Unique makes orthotics and prosthetics, and they use 3D printing to do that. Um, the other thing that they're very focused on is being designed forward. Right? They, they, they want to destigmatize these treatments. Um, so the idea is to also make these things fashion items, to have an emotional connection to these items. Um, so the, the product that we worked on with them was a scoliosis treatment. Um, for those of you who don't know what scoliosis is, it's when you have a, a curve in your spine and they use a brace to, to align it. Um, this is what these braces look like right now. Majority of the cases um, are teenage girls. It's not the time in your life where you want to be walking around with a big, chunky piece of plastic and going to school. Um, so our approach to this was... Um, could we, could we use the computer to, to rethink the forces in this brace, right? Nobody had really thought about making this to a personal case, right? These designs were never optimized. They were never engineered. They're kind of inexpensively made, just kind of 
you know, people take a heat gun and they form plastic around somebody's body. Um, so what you're seeing happening here is an iterative simulation where we're gradually removing material and re-simulating, removing material and re-simulating. And, and again, like, you know, the, the idea here is just that we will, let's see what's possible, right? Let's make systems that will solve this problem. Um, we don't know what the answer is when we start. Uh, and then you, you produce all these iterations and you get families and taxonomies and you find these different solutions. And the idea is that ultimately this all becomes software. Um, thanks to Intel, the, the device is now integrated with sensors. Um, patients and doctors can track the compliance with an app. Uh, I was actually just acquired by the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian last week, so that was exciting. Um, so let's talk about materials now. So um, that's like kind of on the product scale and morphology scale. But a lot of the work we're doing right now is we're really, really focused on rethinking how materials perform, right? Um, Amanda had brought up the, the Nike shoe, the fly knit, where you'd have different composites um, or different, different knitting patterns producing different mechanical properties. Uh, 3D printing and, most, and any other really computer-controlled uh, uh, manufacturing processes are capable of this. So I'm, I'm showing you uh, an MRI because What's, what's amazing about this is it's, it's digital media that's encoding or showing you uh, material information, right? So, um, you know, this is an animation, but the, the white is one type of material, the gray tones are another, the black is another, um, and we're getting a spectrum of material behavior, and it's all encoded digitally in a digital file format. And we know how to make these digital file formats, right? We've, we're, we're making videos, we're, we're sending tweets. This, it's all, it's all, these are all just big, big batches of information. Um, so a few years ago, I think this is about four years old now, um, we were asked to look at a new multi-material printer. And what this printer could do is it would deposit little micro-droplets of a photopolymer. And we were working a lot in fashion at that time, and we were working on a handbag. And, uh, you know, we couldn't really make a simple hinge. Um, the materials were falling apart, like we just didn't know how to make a functional part with this machine. And what we ended up doing was, oh, hopefully this plays. You'll see some static here on the screen if it plays. Hopefully, there we go. So what we realized was actually these are stacks of images, right? This is a printer in a literal sense. So we're going to layer these, all these stacks of images. We're going to make our own composites on the fly. And we thought, well, that's pretty cool. And, and you know, we actually got a functional part. So we were able to do like some material science right on this machine on our desktop. Um, and then we thought, well, like, could we go from something optically clear to opaque to mechanically rigid to soft? Remember, again, from Amanda's presentation, that, that cube. Um, so we thought, well, could we, could we do this in a complex geometry as well? And um, we gave it a try. I mean, this was, again, this was four years ago. We ended up with one terabyte of data to make something that was about five inches by three inches big. Um, but we were able to make continuous gradients um, within a part of, of visual and mechanical properties. Uh, so what you're seeing here, um, you'll see lots of shades of pink, but in reality, if you zoom in, um, each pixel represents a one, one sixteen micron droplet of a material. So just like a halftone image, uh, when you look at something like under a loop in a newspaper, you, images are formed by juxtaposition of different colors. Um, that's what we're doing here, except we're creating different material properties that way. 
these are some photos of the part. You can see that there's this. It's a little more subtle up at the top, but you can see that we're we're blending and we're creating. You can see different optical effects there, and then on the bottom you can see really stark contrast in areas like this. Um, and and it's all one seamlessly connected part. It's not assembled. It, it just comes out of the machine like this. Articulated skins. We've used this to generate color gradients. Um, so. So something else we've been exploring now is could we could we do this? But can we be, we're all, since we're able to sculpt these materials so finely with so much complex geometry, could we look at lattice structures? Could we look at like actually creating mechanical mechanisms in the material that aggregate to give us variable effects? So you don't need to rely on multiple materials. Could we take a machine that's just just sending out one polymer and could we get it to do a variety of different things mechanically? Um, we started looking at impact resistance and what's called a Poisson ratio. So we're trying to control deflection. We're saying, could we, could we program deflection to create internal stresses and forces in a material? Um, so we did some simulations. And um, you know, this is a homogeneous lattice. But what, we, what we're seeing is the same material, but we're seeing different behaviors. right? So when it's really solid, it's really vibrating, and it's taking the impact really hard. But then when we get this lattice structure, it, this is the same period or length of time, but it's absorbing that impact differently. Um, so could we, could we vary that structure geometrically at a, at a very, very fine resolution to, to create programmable matter? Um, you know, and what we're finding is that we can. So what you'll, what you'll see in this image is a lattice. It'll start as a column, and you see very subtle changes in, in, the, in the grid. As that grid is changing, the angles are changing, we're getting different deflections. So when I put this under tension or compression, it'll expand or compress. Right? So we're able to create internal forces and mechanical properties in the material that we couldn't before. Right? This might have required three or four different components by traditional production, but we're able to do this in one component with 3D printing. Um, was taking a longer than I thought. Time's running out. Um, so let's talk about the consumer. Um, so these systems don't all have to be about engineering and performance, right? We could also use these to create narratives, right? Like this is again, like I said, this is all digital media. So this could be various types of engagement, like whether they're narrative. You could think of gaming. You can think of film. Um, the idea is that we're we're just we're interfacing with this media to produce material. Um, so I'm going to show you two simulations. One of them. One will be hit. Well, this is one of them. <laughs> um, you'll notice in the flat areas, these lines are, are settling into spirals. And then in areas of high curvature, they're moving away really quickly. Um, but now this is the same code, just different initial condition. Um, and what you'll see happening here is you're going to see the agents are leaving the body. You're going to see them forming like ruffles around the waistline. Um, and it, you know, this is really just a, a, a kind of, at this stage, it's very abstract. And it's an idea generator. It's a design tool. But we could put those things to work, right? I mean, what what is a what is a product? It's it's, it's drawings that become material. So we can we can turn these materials, these drawings, and these patterns of behavior into products. Um, so last year we collaborated with a, a Dutch shoe brand. Uh, they're called United Nude, and we produced a, a limited release shoe with them. Um, and using similar methods, we were able to sculpt that that heel. It was a limited release of eight shoes. They're uh, they're 18 karat gold. The <laughs> It's an embossed uh, stingray hide up on the top. Um, you know, these are not your everyday shoes. Um, but the idea was that what we would do is we would use an algorithm or use a procedure like that where someone could engage in a, in a, in a digital media or an animation or think of like a game. Um, and then they, they would get something that's just theirs, right? So that the object would be linked to that experience in a, in a digital space. Oh, this is a range of examples of some of the behaviors that were possible there. 
So you'll, you'll see as this animation plays out, we're gradually going to go from something that's very linear and straight um, to something that's a bit more chaotic in the middle. And then in the end, all those caverns start to become ordered. All right, I'm going to close on, on this one project. This is something I, I, that you know, the, the studio has become kind of most well-known for. Uh, we made a 3D-printed uh, gown for Dita Von Thies. Um, it's been a few years now. But the reason I like to show this, and especially in juxtaposition of thinking about the factory, uh, is that this is... This dress has 3,000 unique moving parts on it. Right? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a completely, every inch of that textile is custom. It's custom to her shape, to her body scan. Um, and and it, it's a custom bit for her. Now, this wasn't done in a, in a couture house. It was done in Queens in a factory. Right? And I think this is, these are the kinds of things that these tools are going to enable. Right? The, the things that were once inaccessible or craft are now really going to become part of mainstream manufacturing. Um, we worked with a wardrobing studio in Los Angeles called Michael Schmidt Studios. And this was the design concept. The idea was that we'd, we'd wrap these spirals around the body um, in two dimensions, it's one thing. In three dimensions, you've got this nightmare. Um, but <laughs> you were able to resolve it. Um, and what we did was, we actually, like, the question we get a lot is, well, how do you keep track of 3,000 unique moving parts, right? You can't. It's, it's a big data set. Um, so what we actually just did was we designed one connection, and we, we told the computer how to go through and apply that across the whole body and create a textile. Um, so you'll see it comes out of the printer fully articulated and flexible. It doesn't have to get assembled. Uh, that was the one prototype we got for this before we pulled the trigger on a very expensive dress. Uh, <laughs> dress is actually very thin. The whole dress weighs about 10 pounds. It's 70% lighter than what she normally wears on stage. So it's not actually a very heavy, clunky piece of armor. Um, it really is. It's a chainmail fabric that we fabricated digitally. So you can see that um, you know it drapes, it moves like fabrics. The the, the shoulders were actually kept rigid, um, but you'll see the rest of the, the rest of the dress does just move and flow like a like a textile. All right, so I have one minute left, and I'm, I'm going to just close on, on one of our other clients. They're a they're a startup. Um, they're called Feats, and they they make fully custom scan-to-fit 3D printed shoes. Uh, they deliver them in about two weeks. They're currently um, sold in in two different DSW stores in California, um, and they'll be expanding later this year to other locations. Um, the way it works is you go into the store, you scan your foot, you make a bunch of choices about color, pattern, texture, and you get these shipped to your house in about two weeks. Um, their factory looks like this. It's a bank of essentially desktop printers, right? This is not that different than what you could, could have in your home. Um, the shoes are printed in two pieces and assembled. Um, there's a lot of custom algorithms that we've used to, to, you know, to control thickness and variation, and, and you know, it, it's, it's no small feat getting these to market. And at a reasonable consumer price point, they're selling these for about $150 a pair. Um, the video is not playing. This is what the product currently looks like now. There'll be new styles coming out uh, later this year. Same techniques for generating those fabrics were also used on, on this, this dress, which we did with uh, Chromat and, and Intel. Um, the gown's fully 3D printed, and, and what we do is we control the tool paths uh, in order to, to create a, like a woven fabric um, using, using very, you know, again, like a desktop basic technology. Uh, so thank you for your time. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap it up there, because I'm at zero, and uh, thanks.